I next met with Dr. Jonathan Friedberg, and we began by discussing the only lymphoma paper in the meeting plenary session, a presentation by Dr. Matthias Rommel with more data looking at the Phase three randomized trial comparing bendamustine rituximab to RCHOP in indolent lymphoma. So as everybody is probably familiar, the STILL study involved a randomization between RCHOP and the combination of bendamustine and rituximab for patients with newly diagnosed follicular lymphoma grade 1 and grade 2 that had indication for therapy. And presented now a couple of times were the main findings of the study, which suggested that the bendamustine-rituximab combination offered patients longer progression-free survival with less acute toxicity. Essentially, what was presented at ASCO recapitulated some of these findings, but with longer follow-up, demonstrated that there was durability to these changes, number one. And number two, that there weren't late toxicities evolving in the bendamustine and rituximab arm that were concerning. So the second malignancy rate, at least to date, looked to be similar between the two groups. He also presented some data that looked at what second-line therapy was, which of course was not controlled in the study between the two groups. Not surprisingly, many of the patients who got BR and progressed went on to get RCHOP and vice versa. Many of the patients who got RCHOP went on to get BR, but there were other agents utilized suggesting that there is the ability to give second-line therapy to these patients. I think we're all eager to see this published in manuscript form so that some of the finer details of the study can be gleaned. But at least at the present time, the data certainly supports that the bendamustine-rituximab combination is quite active, and with longer follow-up, there are no alarms that there is unexpected toxicities evolving. Yeah, it's been more than two years now since the study was first presented, and it seemed like people jumped on BR for older patients, but there was some question about the younger patient. How's that evolved in your own practice? What are you seeing in the community and, and in terms of clinical trial development in younger patients? So I think the hesitancy in younger patients that people have mentioned are, for example, they don't know how this may affect subsequent ability to collect stem cells. I find that an interesting argument because the number of patients with follicular lymphoma that eventually get autologous transplants in this country is very, very small. I think in my own practice, I have used this in younger patients. They are susceptible to the same early toxicities as the older patients. I think it's important that people understand that grade three follicular lymphoma was not included in this. I just saw a patient this week who had a new diagnosis of grade three follicular lymphoma. I recommended RCHOP and they were pushing back after their review of online stuff that BR was more appropriate, and I explained that that subgroup wasn't included in the study. I think if there are clinical trials open, we should all encourage enrollment there. And I know the ECOG groups currently open clinical trial in follicular lymphoma for both younger and older patients involves a BR backbone. Maybe you can just briefly comment on the design there and the questions. So that study is looking at the role of the addition of bortezomib up front and lenalidomide maintenance in the treatment of follicular lymphoma. I believe it's a three-arm study that has BR followed by R maintenance. 
BVR followed by our maintenance, and then BR followed by a lenalidomide maintenance program. So at ASH, Brad Call presented the ECOG resort trial, and he was focused in the presentation at ASH on follicular lymphoma. And this study compared rituximab until progression in patients responding to four courses of R compared to four courses of R with retreatment on progression. And he represented this at ASCO. But there was another data set presented at ASCO from the resort study looking at non-FL subsets. What came out at ASCO was looking at now 129 patients in that study who did not have follicular lymphoma. And this group of patients, it's important to say, had a variety of different histologies, including small lymphocytic lymphoma, marginal zone lymphoma, and some other indolent lymphoma subtypes. And the bottom line finding was that in this group of patients, there was evidence of a progression-free survival benefit to rituximab maintenance. But I think there are several important caveats. The first is that unlike the follicular lymphoma population, where over 70% of patients responded to induction therapy with rituximab, the response rate in this group of patients was lower. It was less than 50%. So already of the 129 patients, Only half of them got randomized to these two different schedules. And then if you took a look at by histology, the most common histology on here was small lymphocytic lymphoma. In that group, the response rate to single-agent rituximab was only approximately 20%. So the majority of those patients didn't even get randomized. So to make a decision and say that the way to give single-agent rituximab in these patients involves a prolonged maintenance, I think... It's true based on the data, but what's missed in that comment is that more than half of the patients don't even get randomized, suggesting that, in my opinion, single-agent rituximab is not a very good strategy for most of these other histologies, and that it emphasizes the importance of doing separate studies for these different histologies of indolent lymphoma rather than presuming that findings in follicular lymphoma are going to spread to these other histologies. And I think that it does speak to the fact that there may be some different mechanisms at stake in these different histologies as well. And it cautions us to think that although we try to do these extrapolations from histology to histology, the PRIMA study suggests that there is benefit to rituximab maintenance after our chemotherapy in follicular lymphoma. There is not a lot of benefit to rituximab maintenance that's been observed in CLL, but now when you use single-agent rituximab, there may be evidence that a prolonged administration does make a difference. So let's talk a little bit about new directions in follicular lymphoma and the CALGB50401 study, abstract 8000, looking at, I guess it's called R-squared now, lenalidomide rituximab compared to lenalidomide alone. Right. So we should start by just talking a little bit about the enthusiasm of lenalidomide for the disease. Uh, Lenalidomide is, of course, an immunomodulatory agent that has pleiotropic effects on the treatment of lymphomas. And perhaps, similar to what we were discussing before, the mechanism of the drug might differ from histology to histology. For example, we know in CLL that very low doses of lenalidomide can be active, whereas in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, you need to give higher doses. 
Lenalidomide and follicular lymphoma has been studied in a limited way as a single agent with response rates in the 40% range. And there has been greater enthusiasm to combine it with the drug rituximab, where at least as part of induction therapy, a large phase two single institution study suggests an extremely high response rate with the vast majority of patients obtaining complete response. That was the MD Anderson study? Correct. The so-called R-squared regimen. And that's also been studied in the CALGB, although the results are pending. What John Leonard presented at ASCO was a study in relapse disease of either lenalidomide alone or the combination of lenalidomide with rituximab. And it should be emphasized this was a relatively small phase two trial, 45 patients in each arm. So although it's a randomized study, it's difficult to make definitive conclusions, and I wouldn't want the audience to think this is at the phase three level. And importantly, what they showed was that the response and event-free survival was significantly improved in the group that got the combination of lenalidomide and rituximab compared to lenalidomide alone. The overall response rate was about 72% with the combination, and the median event-free survival was also significantly prolonged. He also described toxicities of this regimen, and the one unique toxicity that got some attention was thrombosis. There were nine clots that occurred. Interestingly, more of these occurred in the single-agent lenalidomide arm compared to the combination, although that was not significant due to the small size. And whether aspirin or other agents could moderate that risk could not really be determined. But their conclusion was, which I certainly agree, is that the combination of lenalidomide and rituximab is active and might be a very interesting platform to study. They've already done that upfront also. And there's a very large randomized trial now that is being activated in Europe that's going to compare the R-squared lenalidomide plus rituximab regimen to our chemotherapy for patients with newly diagnosed follicular lymphoma. How about abstract 8004, looking at allogeneic stem cell transplant and high-risk relapsed or refractory aggressive NHL? So this was an interesting study that probably suffers from many of the problems that happen when you try to interpret the literature of allogeneic stem cell transplant, that of patient selection. But historically, the role of allogeneic transplant in relapsed or refractory aggressive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma has been limited. Certainly, non-myeloblative allogeneic transplantation has yielded relatively poor results because in the time that it takes for a graft-versus-lymphoma effect to develop, the patients with an aggressive histology lymphoma often relapse. And of course, since autologous transplant is standard for this group, most of the patients studied are either patients with refractory disease, so they're not candidates for autologous transplant, or are patients who relapse after autologous transplant. And of course, that's a very heavily pretreated group of patients. This particular study looked at a group of patients who had primary refractory disease, early relapse, or relapse after autologous transplant. And the total number of patients were relatively limited, and it included patients that had both related and unrelated transplants given a myeloablative conditioning regimen. 
they demonstrated overall survival at three years to be 42%, which is higher than many of the other studies would suggest. And what they suggested is that for the refractory patient, where we know from the recently published CORAL study that the outcome in patients who are refractory in the RCHOP era to autologous transplant is really quite unfavorable, that allogeneic transplant might be considered. I think this is an interesting hypothesis-generating discussion, but in reality, the patient selection makes a huge difference, and I don't think that it's easy to extrapolate these results to what you would see in everyday practice. So how about abstract 8021? I'm not sure people are too interested in this anymore. At one point, there was a lot of interest, RCHOP14 versus RCHOP21. Yeah, and I think this is a good lesson for people that sometimes it's good to wait for randomized trial results before making a change in practice. But the German group had published many years ago that CHOP14 without rituximab seemed to be better than CHOP21. And subsequently, of course, we knew that our CHOP was better than CHOP. And there was a debate that raged for many years about whether our CHOP 14 would beat our CHOP 21. And of course, the difference in giving the drugs every 14 days versus 21 days is that the regimen is finished quicker if you give it in 14 days. There's a concern that the toxicity is higher. It turns out that in the randomized trials, that really wasn't demonstrated although there's more need for growth factor and other supportive care. So there have been two randomized studies that try to answer this question, one from France and the other from the United Kingdom. Both of them had been presented in preliminary form before, and at ASCO, the abstract that you mentioned was the final results of the GILA, or French study. And the bottom line here is that there's really no difference between RCHOP14 and RCHOP21, and the toxicities were relatively similar. A criticism of this study that the Germans have made is that the growth factor support that they used wasn't mandated as part of this study, so that the dose intensity of the RCHOP14 may have been slightly less favorable. But I think with the UK study also, at least in preliminary form, showing the same results, the enthusiasm for RCHOP14 has largely gone away. Why don't we talk a little bit about Hodgkin lymphoma? There's a lot going on there, and I'm curious about your thoughts on abstract 8002, looking at ABVD versus Bayacop. Right. So I think it's important to just take a step back and review for the audience what we know about Bayacop and why ABVD has sort of been maintained as the standard in the United States, whereas in many parts of the world, certainly including Germany, where most of the Hodgkin studies are done now, escalated Bayacop is the standard for advanced stage disease. The first study that really definitively tried to evaluate this was a three-arm randomized study that had one arm that was ABVD with COP. It's an old hybrid regimen second arm that was baseline Bayacop, and a third line that had escalated Bayacop. And that study has been presented many times, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and subsequently a follow-up published in the JCO that suggests that there is not only a progression-free survival benefit, but an overall survival benefit at 10 years with escalated Bayacop. 
And the Germans have argued that the COP ABVD is equivalent to ABVD because we know that MOP ABV hybrid is equivalent to ABVD, so that that escalated COP should be the standard. And in fact, the differences between the groups were most profound in the high-risk patients, suggesting that escalated COP really had most of its activity in patients who were at higher risk. The criticisms of that study in the United States certainly have been that COP-ABVD is not the same as ABVD and that the results of the COP-ABVD arm are inferior to what we are seeing now with ABVD. And there's a cost to escalated COP, and up to 3% of patients died of secondary AML, and there were some induction deaths as well that occurred that the Germans say happened as part of a learning curve. So subsequently, the German group has done all kinds of studies to try to make escalated COP safer, and one study that they did looked at what was called 4 plus 4, which was four cycles of escalated COP followed by four of baseline COP. And baseline COP is much easier to give than escalated COP. The doses of the drugs are substantially less. And preliminary results suggested that there was a benefit to the 4 plus 4 in that it was less toxic and equally effective, although subsequent studies have suggested that 4 plus 4 may not be as good as 6 of escalated COP. The study that you mentioned now that was presented at ASCO was not done in Germany. It was done in other countries in Europe, led by the French, that randomized patients to eight cycles of ABVD versus the 4 plus 4 Bayacop regimen. And it's important to say, particularly for a Hodgkin trial, that this is only the first presentation of these results. And although the median follow-up is almost four years, that may be insufficient to really see the appropriate events, including second events, to make a decision on which strategy is best. At any rate, their main findings were that the primary endpoint, event-free survival, was similar between the two treatment arms. But if you take a look at what happened to the patients, there were slightly more progressions or relapses with ABVD, but there were more early discontinuations with escalated COP, as well as some other issues with escalated COP, including fertility issues, treatment burden, as well as the least risk of long-term late effects like second cancers. So their initial conclusion was that there is nothing that appears to be definitive evolving to say that one of these regimens is better than the other. And because of that, it may be interpreted that if you're using ABVD now, like most American physicians are, that there is no reason to change. There was a recent publication in the New England Journal that showed similar outcome of an Italian study that looked at this in a randomized way and basically showed that with the ABVD treatment strategy, there were more relapses, but they could be salvaged with autologous transplant, and at the end of several years, there was no difference in overall survival. I still struggle with some of this data, and I would portend that if escalated COP had been developed in the United States, that we might be using that as our major platform for the treatment of Hodgkin lymphoma. And certainly for a patient with high-risk Hodgkin lymphoma, which has at least four of the risk factors in the Hodgkin lymphoma prognostic index, 
I would consider escalated BAYACOP for a younger patient for at least a certain number of cycles. I think our studies now in the United States are exciting in that they're really trying to see if we can have our cake and eat it too, in that we're starting treatment with ABVD, and in patients who don't have a response after two cycles by PET, who don't have a complete response by PET, then they move to escalated BAYACOP. And in our large intergroup study that we're leading in SWOG, over 250 patients have been enrolled, and only 20% of patients have residual PET avidity after the two cycles. So the moral of the story is in that study, only 20% of the patients will be exposed to the risks of escalated BAYACOP. And we'll see if that strategy may not be equivalent to giving everybody escalated BAYACOP up front. What do you do in your own practice outside a trial setting? I'm sure you try to get people on that study. Right. Well, that's clearly been a high-priority study for us. But outside of that setting, I still use ABVD. And it's because I have more familiarity with it and because of the concerns that I mentioned. So let's talk a little bit about CLL. And we were commenting on Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibition. And there was a paper presented, Abstract 6507, looking at, I guess it's called ibrutinib and CLL. So there were a couple of studies that looked at the ibrutinib agent in CLL at ASCO. And the first study that you mentioned, let's just talk for a minute about exactly how this drug works. Ibrutin's tyrosine kinase is a member of the B-cell receptor pathway and basically, the concept is, is that many lymphomas rely on either tonic or other signaling through the B-cell receptor to maintain survival. So inhibiting pathway members such as BTK should result in basically ultimate death of those cells. The observation has been that these drugs, for whatever reason, have particular activity in CLL. We saw that several years ago with the SICK inhibitor as well as it's been observed with PI3 kinase inhibitors. So this study looked at the single agent ibrutinib, and basically what this confirmed is what we've known with other preliminary presentations, that this is really a very highly active agent. They looked at various doses, and there does not appear to be a significant dose response beyond a dose of 420 milligrams in CLL. And the response rate was substantial, depending on how the responses were defined. Somewhere between 60 and 75% of patients did respond to this agent. Interestingly, what's been observed with this whole class of agents has been some sort of a marginalization effect where lymphadenopathy shrinks and the white count might even transiently go up and then over time, the white count normalizes. So some of the response criteria that have been utilized are a little bit complicated to interpret. But the bottom line is, is that this study has shown how effective this is. And because of this study, numerous combinations are being explored. And so speaking of combinations, I guess a couple were reported, one ibrutinab and ofatumumab. Right. And again, I think the introduction to why this makes particular sense is that the monoclonal antibodies in treating any lymphoma tend to work best in the blood and in the bone marrow and are not very effective at bulky lymph nodes. So you could think a very appealing combination might be to take 
a drug like abrutinib that shrinks the lymphadenopathy and then maybe give those cells some sort of a second hit with monoclonal antibody that is effective in circulating. Could I just ask you, does that apply to CD20 antibodies or just, I've heard that with alumtuzumab. So CD20 antibodies, it's probably not as apparent, but the complete response rate of single agent rituximab is lower when disease gets bulky. So in the original study of relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma, once disease exceeded five centimeters, it was almost never that a CR was observed. So I think it's relative. It's not quite as uh, apparent as with alumtuzumab. But yes, I think that in general, the monoclonal antibodies are most active in blood. Interesting. 